7. And, and we're going to break down this story into a few different sections. So the, the first is going to be Genesis chapter 7, verses 1 through 16. And then we're going to skip over to 8, 1 through 3. And then we're going to skip over again to verses four through nine, 14 through 19. But I'll remind you as we go through. Uh, so Genesis 7, 1 through 16. Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all of your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. You shall take with you every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean, two, a male and his female, also of the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive in all the face of the earth. For after seven more days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made." Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Now Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood, of clean animals and animals that are not clean and birds and everything that creeps on the ground. There went into the ark to Noah by twos, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. It came about after the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened. The rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth and the sons of Noah and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind and all the cattle after their kind and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds. So they went into the ark to Noah, by twos of all flesh, in which was the breath of life. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him, and the Lord closed it behind him. Over to chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts, and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. Also the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky was restrained, and the water receded steadily from the earth, and at the end of 150 days, the water decreased. And then finally to verses 14 through 19. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife, and your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they might breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, Everything that moves on the earth went out by their families from the ark. I want to open this message by telling you a story of the great flood. And it starts with a man that, that's a lot like you and me, a man that has a family, a man that has uh, property and crops. This man's name was Utnapishtim. Utnapishtim had a family and one day, one of the gods descended from the sky 
And he let Utnapishtim know that a great flood was coming. And he said, listen, a council of gods got together and they have decided that humanity is annoying. They're too loud, they're too raucous, they demand too much attention. And so the gods have decided that they wanna kill all of humanity, everything on the earth, and they're gonna do this by way of a flood. They're gonna open up the windows of heaven, they're gonna open up the floodgates on the sides of the earth, and everyone is gonna perish. But this guy, this god, I, says to Utnapishtim, you need to build a vessel to save yourself, your family, your property, and all of the animals that you can. And so he builds this vessel, and he brings in all of the animals, he brings in all of his craftsmen, he brings in all of his gold and silver, and he shuts the door behind him, and he waits. And sure enough, he sees the gods come down from the sky and open up the windows of heaven, open up the floodgates on the side of the earth, and there we go. The whole earth is flooded, but he and his family are saved. And at the end of it all, as the waters decrease, he comes out of the vessel with his family and with his animals, saved from all harm, and he offers a sacrifice to the gods. And the text that I'm reading from specifically says that when he offered the sacrifices, the gods came down like swarms of flies to begin to eat the sacrifice that Utnapishtim gave them. And it was in that moment that the gods realized that they made a mistake because they realized that it was the humans that offered them sacrifices that allowed them to live and eat. And so they sit back and they go, oh my goodness, we almost destroyed the very things that gave us food to live. And so what they say to Utnapishtim is, you are an incredible man that has saved yourself and all of humanity. We're gonna grant you immortality. And so they grant Utnapishtim immortality and he's able to live for eternity on earth, all because he saved himself in all of life and we are here today because of him. Now before you get up and leave thinking you walked in on a pagan service here, this is one of many stories that would have been told in Israel's day. The story sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sounds awfully familiar. A man is minding his own business and a god comes to warn him of a great flood, gives him dimensions for a vessel, tells him to take in all of the animals and save himself, and then at the end of the flood, he comes out and offers a sacrifice. But you know, as much overlap as this story has, there's quite a few differences, isn't there? You see, Israel lived in a day where the story that I just told, the story of Utnapishtim and the Great Flood, that was a very common story. And it wasn't just a very common story in people's history, this would have been their salvation story. This would have been the story that they told their kids and their grandkids, and they talked about the day that humanity was almost wiped away, but it was the great Utnapishtim that saved himself. And then you could almost imagine that, that kids would imagine being Utnapishtim and they would tell one another that we're gonna save ourselves just like he did. You see, this was a story that Israel was surrounded with in their lifetime. And while Israel was telling, telling the, the story of Noah in the great flood, it was Babylon, it was the Philistines, it was all of those around them that were telling the story of Utnapishtim. 
And as you can see in this story, it is so backwards to the salvation story that we know. Because in this story, the gods are wrathful and vengeful. They destroy humanity not because of uh, immorality or sin or violence to one another. They want to destroy humanity because they just don't like them. They're just annoying people. And so as, as they're telling these stories over and over, people in this world are beginning to believe that the gods are wrathful. And then when Israel comes along and they talk about the one true God, these other nations could say, well, we've heard of the one true God or the many gods, and we know that they're vengeful and wrathful and they're out to get us. So we need to keep them at bay with our sacrifices. And that's another point that this story brings up is the importance of manipulation. That humanity can somehow manipulate the gods and tell the gods what needs to be done. That's what Utnapishtim did. And so again, Israel is battling this warped sense of salvation in their day. Because all the nations are saying, no, no, the gods are vengeful, the gods are wrathful, and we need to manipulate them so that they don't kill us. And if we feed them enough, they'll bless us with power and strength. And then we're able to make our own salvation. There it is. That is the main distortion that this story was teaching everyone around Israel. The belief that man could provide himself with his own salvation. And this is a story that would have been carried on generation to generation. And at this point, doesn't even matter if it comes from Utnapishtim or some other Greek or Roman or Indian mythology. It all boils down to man must save himself. Of course, this is thousands upon thousands of years ago, so we don't have that trouble today, do we? We do. We may not be hearing the story of Utnapishtim in the flood, but we certainly are hearing stories of salvation that have nothing to do with God. We live in a world that still has a warped understanding of true salvation. We live in a world where people are going after salvation in a way that is unbiblical. Very importantly, they're going after salvation in a way that is not true and will not lead them to salvation. See, we've met people. Maybe at one point you were one of these people where you felt that God was vengeful and wrathful. That's still in the world as, as you begin to uh, uh, listen to the media, as you watch movies, as you read stories. You begin to see this warped perception that God doesn't have a care for you, but he only cares for himself, or that God is not able to save you. In fact, it, you know, it's, it's, it's fun when you tell people that you're a pastor. It's fun because sometimes things shift a little bit. So sometimes I don't pull out the pastor card. Uh, I just pull out the Christian card. And, and I just, well, I'm a Christian. I believe in this or that. And it's amazing how the questions sort of begin to surface. Like, could God really listen to all of those prayers? You're a pastor. You can answer this, right? Is God really able to, you know, Eau Claire, Wisconsin has 65,000 people in it. God is listening to all of their prayers, and you think of the whole world, God can hear all of that? 
And what is this telling me but that people are actually feeling and thinking in their heart that when they pray, God can't hear them? What does that tell you? It's a warped perception of salvation. That if I cry out to God, it's not that he won't listen, he just can't. There's other warped perceptions of God. That if there's anything evil that has gone on in the world, it must be God's fault. God must not care enough. So let's set aside, okay, the impossibility of God hearing all the prayers. Another warped perception people have is that God is not able or does not want to do anything about the evil that's in the world. And people begin to point to all of those problems. Again, if I pull out the pastor card and I let people know, that's sometimes a conversation we get into. We were on a flight once, and I was sitting next to a man who had moved to Germany, and he said he loved Germany. He said, oh, I just, I love Germany because Germany has left behind all of the fables of religion. And he began to talk to me about how no one no longer believes in God, and therefore we have no problem with evil. The problem is there's still a problem of evil, isn't there? You just have no one else to blame. But again, this is a warped perception of salvation because what ends up happening is people begin to believe that, well, if God can't listen to prayers or if God doesn't want to listen to our prayers or if God can't or won't do anything about our problems, well, then we must work on our problems by ourselves. And in fact, there's issues that seep into the Christian life where the enemy begins to take over in ways where he begins to speak and say, you have to fix yourself before God will fix you. Have you ever heard that one from the enemy? That's a warped perception of salvation. And so now going all the way back to Utnapishtim in the flood, Israel is surrounded by these nations. Not only are they surrounded by nations that have a warped sense of salvation, they're surrounded by nations that want to kill them with a warped sense of salvation. So if you think you have it rough, just read the Old Testament. Because now they're battling with people and are trying to convince people on their borders, we serve the one true God. We serve the God that is omnipotent, the God that knows all, the God that is all-powerful. And yet people still fall back into their warped sense of salvation. Which brings us to the text that we have today, which is Noah and the flood. Whether you knew it or not, Noah and the flood is the first story of salvation in the Bible. It's the first story that God says, I am going to save. Up to this point, he's protecting, he's watching over, he's guiding, but now we're getting to a point where humanity is so evil. And Pastor Mark mentioned this last week in Genesis 6, that man is so evil, every thought, every intention was evil. It wasn't just that there was a few uh, uh, bad people among many. Everyone was bad. Everyone was evil. Everyone was killing one another. And God could have looked down on that and said, I'm going to destroy everything and start over. But he looked at Noah, and the scripture says, he saw him and how Noah was righteous. And Noah wasn't just righteous among his peers. Noah walked with the Lord. 
Noah was with God each and every day. He remembered God when everybody else forgot about him. And when God looks down on Noah, he says, I need to take care of the evil that's in the world, but I don't want to destroy all of humanity. And he says, I will establish my covenant with you, Noah. I will save you and your family, and I will save the animals, but you have to do this. You have to build an ark. And God lays out the plan for Noah. He says, you must build this ark. He gives all of the dimensions to it. And then as the story goes on, he gives Noah the directions for how to go into the ark, when to go into the ark, what to bring in, how many animals, not just uh, twos, male and female, but he even has them bring in animals that we presume are used for sacrifices and for multiplication for eating. And so he brings all of them into the ark. Uh, and, and he says, the flood is coming. You need to go into the ark. And when the flood comes, sure enough, God closes the door to the ark, the waters come, and the, the ark is lifted up, and for a year, Noah is with his family and all of the animals waiting for the flood waters to go away. And in chapter 8, when all of this has taken place, when the flood waters have come, the scriptures say that God remembered Noah. In all of that chaos, it wasn't just Noah get on the ark and save yourself, it was Noah get on the ark and I will save you. And the scriptures say that he remembered Noah and the waters begin to decrease. And then, and then there's part of the story where Noah sends out the birds and the birds come back and then finally don't come back. But did you notice, even in those moments, Noah doesn't get out of the ark? He waits. Like at this point, you know, I don't know about you guys, but, uh, well, I, I think I can say this. My wife's in the nursery. Uh, my in-laws came for this week, and I love my in-laws. But, you know, there's after a few days where the house is small and the schedule is messed up a little bit that you start to go, okay. And by the way, I do this with my own family. They helped us move in, and after a week, it was, when are you guys heading home? <laughs> so you would think with Noah and his family that he's in this ark with all of these animals, not, not just animals. Have you ever been in a barn? Picture a barn with every animal throughout the world in it? And they got to clean it up, and they got to eat all the, they got to ration out the food that they've kept, and they got to live with one another. I mean, after one week, I would be done. This guy stays in the ark for a year. And then, even as the waters uh, decrease, and, and later on in chapter 8, it says that the water was dry, but Noah's not getting out of that ark. At this point, he doesn't care how annoying his sons and daughter-in-laws and, and animals might be. He's waiting for God's command on what to do next. And then God finally says it, Noah, come out of the ark now. And so Noah comes out of the ark, and he offers a sacrifice to God and praise and worship, and that's where God establishes a covenant with him. But do you see the vast difference in this salvation story and the salvation story that would have been around Israel's neighbors? 
With Utna Pishtim and that salvation story, we're talking about manipulation and envy and wrathfulness and venge, uh, 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 revenge. That's the word I'm looking for, revenge. But in this salvation story, we are seeing something absolutely, characteristically different than that story. Because in this story with Noah, we see God as sovereign. God is in control. He doesn't have to convene a council with anybody else. He makes the decisions. Not only is, is he in charge and he's in control, but he governs everything. As we read later in Scripture, there's references to how it was God that opened up the floodgates. It was God that opened up the windows of heaven for this flood to come, but it was only after he shut the door to the ark. When Noah gets in, it wasn't Noah that closed the door. It was God that closed the door. This is very important because when you look at many other flood stories that are throughout the world, it's the man that builds his own ark, and when he gets in, he shuts the door, and he makes sure it's sealed. But in this story, it's God that closes the door. It's God that makes sure that everyone is safe inside before the floods come. It's God who knows what's going on around Noah and his family. It's God that begins to tell Noah what to do because he knows everything that's going to happen. Do you see the difference? God knows what Noah is going through, and he's saving Noah from it. There's also this important aspect of obedience in the story. When God comes and talks to Noah, it's not a suggestion. It's not guidelines for living. This is a command from the Lord. Noah, I'm going to destroy the earth. You will build this ark. Noah, the flood is coming. You will get in that ark. Noah, the flood is here. Stay in the ark. All right, Noah, I have surveyed the world and everything is safe. You can come out of the ark now. Do you see the importance of obedience? Every action that God calls Noah to do is for his very own salvation. He's not calling Noah to do something that's pithy or meaningless. He's calling Noah to perform an action that is meant to save him, his family, and the salvation of humanity. And all of this is motivated by God's love. God is not vengeful or wrathful. God is loving. God is full of grace and mercy. If he wanted to, he could have looked at humanity and destroyed everyone and just started over. But it was his grace and mercy, it was his motivation of love that said, I want to save humanity, and so I'm going to call Noah to do it. God's motivation in our salvation is grace and mercy. The story of Utnapishtim in the flood may be a story of the flood, but it's not our story. There are many stories of salvation in this world that reference who they think God is, but that is not our story of salvation. Our story of salvation is about a God who's loving, who's full of mercy and grace, who when he calls us to salvation, it's because he wants to see us live. 
And so as we take this story of Noah and apply it to our lives, one of the things we see is that God is sovereign in our salvation. God was working on your heart long before you even knew it. God was calling you to salvation before you were even called to salvation. This is a grace that God bestows on us where as we go through trials and tribulations in our life, God knows what's happening and he's preparing us to receive his word in our heart. You see, the world, the world is afraid that God has forgotten about them. The world is afraid that God can't hear their prayers, but what we know in our salvation is that God was preparing us. God was calling us. God is still with us. God is still saving us. God is still sanctifying our hearts to be drawn closer to Him, to continue in eternal life. What's more is that God is doing this out of pure grace and mercy. He's doing this out of pure love for us. There is nothing you did to deserve this. It's all his motivation because he wants to see you live. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. But he wants us. And now we better understand the reason for obedience, don't we? Because now when we talk about listening to God's voice and answering his call, we now realize that when God calls you to do something, he's not asking you to do a pithy task. He's not asking you to do something meaningless, nor is he asking you to do something that doesn't have any consequences to it. When God calls you to do something in ministry, he's doing it as a part of your salvation. This is for your own good. This is why obedience to the Lord is so important. Because as we're obedient to God and we say yes to his commands, God is continuing to save us. Again, motivated all by his love. Now we have a calling in this world to share this story. Like I said, the story of Utnapishtim is not our story. The stories of salvation that are found in this world, those are not our stories. We have the true story of salvation. It starts with Noah and it continues through the rest of Scripture. You have a story of salvation in your own heart where God has led you, where Jesus Christ has saved you from sin and death. You now have an obligation to correct the salvation stories of the world. You have an obligation, if you are a Christian, when you hear somebody misunderstand salvation or tell the wrong story of salvation, you now have an obligation to interject and correct. Not to put anybody down. You, you do this with grace and mercy. You do this with as much politeness as you have in you. And if you don't have any politeness in you, pray for it. <laughs> but you do this because others need to hear this story of salvation. 
Others in this world here in Eau Claire need to hear the story of how it was God who saved Noah. How it was God who gave a command that saved Noah and his family. How God called you from a life of death into a life of salvation and abundant life in Him. As we leave this place today, you are called to share this story of salvation to everyone you know in this world and to correct the misunderstandings that are prevalent. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your story of salvation, the true story of salvation.